I've been rather enjoying over the last few days having a chance to spend a time or a certain amount of time in relative silence uh, with you all and it's uh, nice to connect with the retreat in that way although I've still had some other duties and responsibilities including thinking of something to talk about uh, this afternoon and what I'd like to speak about is in fact a theme which I don't in any way regard myself as an expert or particular authority on and yet one which I think is of, of interest to, to look at, to explore and it's the, the role and the place of devotion in the context of our practice and particularly, particularly in the context of what we sometimes call a wisdom practice and using that as a direct um, contrast to what could be called devotional practices and devotional traditions. I think the experience for many of us as Westerners with devotion is that we can be both attracted towards and repelled by what it offers or what it um, represents for us. We can see something rather attractive and alluring in the images that we may have seen of happy, smiling devotees crowding around their flower-garlanded guru and full of love and joy and peace and light and it looks rather good sometimes compared to the bare sort of bones of our breathing or the sort of ongoing ache in our knee and sometimes we hear the stories that oh yes, devotion, you know and through the devotional path suddenly all obstacles are removed suddenly the, the much desired and cherished goal is offered to us on a plate of um, of lavender-scented petals by the guru and, you know, we can sort of take it easy from there. And while there is that certain attraction to the possibility that devotion itself may be sufficient to complete our practice, we have also perhaps had the situation where blind devotion has been asked of us in our lives, perhaps by religious um, authority, in the, um, you know, the Western Christian religions, there's no shortage of them. And equally, of course, in the East. Sometimes we are asked to, to give complete authority, a form of devotion in which there is no place left for our own discernment, our own wisdom. And we may have had something of a difficult or a negative experience in relationship to this. And uh, certainly that can lead us to be rather rather shy, rather hesitant um, when it comes to uh, contemplating the possibility of devotion, of devoting ourselves to. And it is, I think, very important that we do bring wisdom to bear in the realm of devotion. That devotion needs to be informed by our experience. It needs to be understood in the light of our wisdom and our understanding. And yet, at the same time, I don't think we can escape from the fact that to some degree, in some way, if we're going to engage in devotion, it does involve a degree of faith, a degree of surrender, without any guarantees, without any 
predictability based on our previous experience or even in fact on our immediate experience. So we need to explore in the realm of devotion a balance between those two sides perhaps. The side of feeling that we need to be, or we wish to be completely in charge and determining our decisions always based on our own experience, our own wisdom, and completely surrendering that. Because while questioning authority is important for us, and crucial in fact in our practice, questioning the authority of the words of the Buddha, no less, and how much more we could then question the authority of anyone else who should be so bold as to speak on matters of spiritual practice and teachings. Questioning that is important. And yet, there's an incredible power. There's an incredible potency that we discover in our practice when we actually give, give ourselves, our views, give our preferences and choices away. When we actually don't make them the total and sole basis of our decisions and our directions. But that we open ourselves up to things unfolding in perhaps a different way. I remember the very first teachings, Dharma teachings I received, at least from a, a human as opposed to from a book. I was in India at the time, and it, in fact, Budgaya, where the Buddha was enlightened, and a Tibetan Lama was there giving teachings, and I really didn't know much about this thing called Buddhism, so I went along to listen, and he was speaking about um, the first teaching that all practitioners, I understand, are given, and at least this tradition that he was speaking from, of the, the 50 yogas of guru devotion. And um, he spent, in fact, many hours and days, although I didn't actually manage to last all of the days, talking about these 50 verses, these 50 directions for practice about how you would give yourself in total devotion to the guru, to your teacher. And in that one essentially makes or sees the teacher, the guru in that case, as the incarnation of the Buddha, as absolute, the perfect manifestation of absolute wisdom, complete and total compassion. And and one devotes oneself to that teacher. Now, as I said, I didn't actually stay for more than a few hours of this particular encouragement. Um, that seemed to be enough for me at the time. But I did later hear and it, um, I think, balanced for me rather well that teaching, which seems a little extreme to me, with the, um, the guideline that is given in that tradition, which is a very wonderful tradition, that, uh, in fact, you should study and observe your potential teacher for 12 years before you take them on in that way. So that you really look, you really see, you really know that this is someone to whom you can give yourself that fully, devote yourself that totally. And once you know, once you're clear, once that trust is there, then the devotion is absolute, unquestioned and irrevocable. And we perhaps reflect on where in our own experience or practice of devotion this may have some bearing, where we might experience it. In our modern, western, and for many of us, lay 
practice form, this is what we call these insight meditation practices, retreats and teachings that we engage in, we can see that there's really not so much care, or not, not so much focus, I should say, rather than care, not so much focus given to devotional practices, to devotion itself. In fact, one can go through many, many retreats and not hear it mentioned all that much. And certainly one can come in here and there's no particularly obvious um, sort of expressions of um, something to devote oneself to unless one sort of fancies laying one's head at the feet of a potted plant, which wouldn't be a, um, a bad practice. But uh, we, we don't go in for so much bowing, so much chanting. You know, someone was pointing out to me recently that we all seem to be bringing our hands together like this a little bit more than we did five or ten years ago. And so perhaps it's slowly creeping up on us. But uh, although we somewhat uh, give it less emphasis, at the same time it has actually a very powerful quality and therefore a very important one and one not to be disregarded. It's really a quality of the heart. And it's a, a quality that comes from our heart that gives us a degree of dedication, a degree of wholeheartedness when we're devoted. It's a, a way in which it enables us, it empowers us even, to give first priority to something that is important, to make it more important than perhaps the many other things that may be sort of kicking and stamping their feet within us, um, seeking to be more important. And by this I perhaps am referring to the, the sort of the, the wants and the, the habits and the the, the tendencies of mind and body that sometimes seem to be what is most important if we look at what we're actually doing. But devotion actually, in some ways, could be said to be the power of love harnessed into action, which where our love, where our depth of appreciation for that which is truly important to us actually allows us to let go, allows us to not give so much priority, so much weight, so much power, to those things which we truly understand to be of less significance, without disregarding them or denying them their place in the scheme of things. And so we we can we can put them aside and in coming on retreat we put so many things aside to perhaps focus on what is more important to us, to perhaps devote our time to devote our day, to devote each moment and the very energy of our being to what is important, to what we truly value. And there's another way, together with this, this power of devotion, that, that objects of devotion or devotional practice can also be significant, can be important for us. There can be images, such as some of the pictures that are around the building a few. Some people maybe have shrines. You may have made a little place in your, in your room or you may have felt a sense of a, a shrine room in this room, even though we don't have a formal shrine here. Or there may be that um, some of the, 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 the figures, the Buddha images that are, we call rupas, which means form, form of the Buddha, um, that are around the house or that you may have brought with you, that, that they can touch us in certain ways through a sense of heart connection with, a sense of devotion to. 
there's a way in which we can find that they gladden our heart. That they actually just represent something for us that touches us, that brings forth from our being a sense of, of happiness, of joy, or just a sense of connection in some way. And of course it's equally true that we can look at these things and it's just a picture, it's just a lump of clay and it means nothing at all to us. There's no expectation that it should have any meaning for you. But for those, and for some of us, it it does sometimes, it can touch us. It can not just touch us in that way, but, but objects or images of devotion towards which we may feel some devotion can also perhaps act as a as an inspiration, as a reflection back to us of our own potential, of our own possibilities. And I think in this way, objects of devotion are perhaps most, most potent, most powerful, in that they, they offer to us an invitation to explore, to embody our own possibilities, or even just to question to what extent those possibilities may be real for us. And, and the you know, images of the Buddha that we see. It's not about some guy who lived and died two and a half thousand years ago. It's about a human being who realized the truth of life, who understood what is real so deeply, so profoundly, that he was able to teach and share that understanding with thousands of people, women and men like ourselves. And and that might bring just a a sense of appreciation, a sense of devotion from us. What an incredible thing. How amazing, how fortunate we are to be the recipients of that of that momentous event, that wisdom and compassion. And we might also see an image, and it will speak to us on a more personal level. And a, a good friend, a meditator who... Um, spoke to me once, I remember, of how she was touched by receiving as a gift a statue, a small statue of Tara, who was a Tibetan, um, I guess we would say, a, a manifestation of Buddha, uh, uh, so a female Buddha figure. And in fact, we have a Tara image in the, um, in the notice board room, which you may have noticed. But she spoke because, it touched her because seeing a feminine embodiment of wisdom and compassion in its fullest fruition and manifestation. That symbol, as she spoke to her, she related, of her own possibility in a way that she related to more deeply than any male Buddha image had ever touched her or could touch her. And and sometimes images can, can speak to us like that. They can be powerful. And again, the devotion that comes may not be that we want to lay ourselves at the feet of the image, but that something deep within ourselves bows down to that which the image represents. Something within ourselves which might be concerned with our own personal importance, or might be invested in and certain about our own limitations and our own defects and lack of capacity. And something in ourselves can actually bow down to an image or to what an image is speaking to us that speaks of our possibility. And I think this is an expression of an inner devotion.
So looking at the importance of the quality of devotion goes very much with the question to what does our devotion move towards? What are we? What could we? What should we be devoted to? And we can look perhaps in our own experience certainly in the world around us and see devotion expressed in many ways and forms devotion towards a particular person a teacher living or dead towards a particular teaching or body of teachings such as the Dharma towards a practice such as meditation towards a community a tradition an object which might to us seem quite inanimate devotion can seem to be expressed in many different ways and to many different things and it is powerful we can see how powerful it is and sometimes we see the power of it very closely connected with certain dangers that come in the context of devotion and we've all heard the stories I'm sure of people perhaps even had the experience of having devoted themselves or ourselves to someone or something in a total and complete and absolute way made ourselves completely open completely vulnerable and then at some point in the future that person to whom the devotion has been offered that tradition has somehow turned out not to be quite what was believed what was quite what was expected there's been some there's been some abuse there's been some uh, disillusionment there's been some harm some suffering that's arisen out of that relationship of devotion and and because of those dangers we have to look very carefully at our relationship to anything that we give that devotion to at any person at any tradition and I include within that the Buddhist tradition the practice of meditation we can actually take these on in a way that isn't always healthy through a, through a sense of devotion that has lost or has disempowered its own or our own discernment our own wisdom that needs to go hand in hand with that and yet for all that the dangers might be there for all that there are risks if we stop and ask ourselves where is the devotion in our lives we might not find that we quite connect with the word it might be something else it might be dedication that we would what are we truly dedicated to in our lives just see what what arises within us what what springs forth from the heart in response to that question I remember once um, teaching a retreat together with uh, Christopher Christopher Titmus I imagine most of you know and in India and in Budgaya in fact and between the two retreats we were teaching with some other friends um, one of the retreatants who was also a, um, a very committed devotee of a, a, a guru in India came to uh, Christopher while we were sitting at the chai shop and uh, in the conversation asked what's the place of devotion in this practice you know, sort of, you know all this watching the breath and sort of bare bones experience what's the place of devotion in this and I remember Christopher's reply very clear, very direct devotion to the here and now this is it and 
And from that, what's our devotion to the here and now? What's our devotion to truth in our lives? What's our devotion to freedom? Do we find do we find that response from the from the being? Do we find that sense of something that responds in our heart that acknowledges that this is important above all else? Because that's where devotion comes from. Acknowledging that this is important above all else. And our practice really asks us to be devoted to the truth. To be devoted to the truth. To make that our primary reference point. For there is no other reference point that is worthy of the name. And in that devotion to the truth, to this moment, to actually enter into our experience wholeheartedly. So that again, we inwardly bow down to the revelation of each moment, of each experience, to what we see arising within us, to what we observe going on around us. Not cowering somehow in sort of um, fear of it, nor with some sense of, you know, I'm bowing down, but just in a way in which we let our sense of self soften and melt, perhaps we might say. And our, our practice, when we let when we let ourselves connect with that deep devotion to the here and now, our practice is simply being present and letting go. Simply being present and letting go. And yet, devoting ourselves wholeheartedly to that simple practice is the most challenging and yet the most rewarding thing we can do with our lives. In devoting ourselves to this moment, to this experience, or equally to a practice, to a teacher, to a tradition, we see that there's a way in which we make something more important than ourselves. That devotion acknowledges the, the greater significance, the greater importance of something other than our personal world of likes and dislikes, of habits and tendencies. And that that sense of something greater, something larger, something more important, very naturally enables us to be less concerned with those movements of self, those movements of I want this, I don't want that. Because they, they start to fall into place. They start to, again, it's not that they're dismissed completely, because sometimes they're a voice we need to listen to, but that they just start to come into the context of something larger, something greater, something more significant, something more significant, which we feel a sense of devotion towards. And it's rather clearly illustrated for any of you, and I don't, but any of you that have children. And we, we hear about you know a parent's devotion to the child. What that means, what one sees, and I visit friends regularly with young children, I see what they want to do isn't really what happens, it's what the child needs. I was talking with a friend recently, and she's in a very difficult and painful situation in her relationship. 
and as we were talking about some very difficult, painful aspects of it, her small child slipped over, getting out of the bath upstairs, started crying, and immediately she has to just drop her own world and go and attend to the child. And just, just a sense of that devotion, of, of that caring for the, for the little one there. And equally, we might have a devotion to the welfare, to the well-being of all of life. A sense that this is so important, this is truly more important than our own personal level of comfort. Than at times even our own personal welfare. Although ultimately these two things are bound very closely together. But at times we can even, in a short-term way, let go of our own needs, even, our own welfare, to care for something larger. And, and it comes through a sense of devotion, through a sense of... And we might not think of it as devotion, we might not use that language, but that in our heart we bow down before something that is greater, that is more important. And in this bowing down, this devotion, it's an act of offering, an act of giving. It's something that moves from our heart outwards to touch, to touch the world, to touch others. It's... It's a giving of ourselves to the practice, as we do, as we seek to do more and more fully. Giving of ourselves in that way. And in fact we see in the tradition, if we read the stories, in fact of you know the days of the Buddha and contemporaries, and stories in fact right through to today in these very days of practitioners, um, nuns and monks in Asia, who give themselves so wholeheartedly to practice, they're so devoted to it, that neither illness nor threat of death will make them stop. And I remember reading stories of, of um, practitioners you know, doing walking meditations with knees so swollen with illness that they can barely bend them, and yet still doing their walking. They can't sit cross-legged any longer, but just walking. And of course, in Asia, they, you know, they're not so concerned about death in some ways, because they're equally going to sit practicing in front of you know, on paths where tigers walk. And really having to look the tiger in the eye because they're that committed and devoted to their practice that it's worth the risk. And occasionally, occasionally, the, the monk, the nun, has actually been eaten. And there's one incredible story about the two companions running away as the, as the, the monk was being devoured by the tiger saying, be mindful, be present. Their last advice to the, the dying the dying meditator. You know, it sort of puts some of our hindrances in perspective, really. And you think, what kind of devotion to, to the, you know, the practice would it take to sit there and know that that's a risk? And of course it comes, for many in Asia at least, with a, um, a view that not all of us here can um, sort of totally relate to, which is, well, okay, so, you know, we just have another go after that one if this body, you know, gets sick and falls off or gets eaten, well, you know, then I'll just get born again and keep going and, you know, you pretty much pick up where you left off. They tend to put it quite that literally. And um, so one can see that gives them a bit of an advantage in that particular score if, they, if that faith is there. But again, it's that sense of a giving. It's just a giving of oneself to the point that one gives one's existence, if that's what it takes. But what often happens, I think, with devotion and where the danger is in it, is that rather than being an act of giving, it's actually fueled at some primary level by a wish to get something, by a wish and a wanting and a 
a craving, a clinging on to that which one seeks to get from that devotional act, from that devotional relationship. And it's that, that wanting of something, and classically, of course, with the, the guru, where there has been the, um, the abuse of trust or power or, or something like that has, does occasionally happen, that, that often the person hasn't seen the signs, they haven't seen the pointers, they haven't regarded or paid careful attention to signals that were there, that afterwards are so obvious. And the reason that that's not seen, I think, is often because there's a wanting for something. Something's on offer. It's like, dedicate yourself to me and I will give you. I, I will bring you. I will free you. I will connect you to God. I will give you your freedom. Truth will be revealed through the Guru. And whether the Guru says it, or whether it's just that the person, the devotee, believes it, if that devotion is infused with a wanting and a craving and a holding, then we don't see where we might be getting lost. We don't see whether devotion may actually be an inappropriate response rather than a powerful and useful one. And the same can happen to us in our practice. If, and again, perhaps disregarding the story about the monks sitting with the tigers or the, um, you know, the, the nuns practicing with uh, in, intense... Uh, sickness in the body but we might in our dedication and our devotion to our sitting practice feel that okay I'm just going to stay with this posture I'm going to stay here no matter what and I don't really care and by doing that somehow I'm going to get somewhere somehow that's going to do something for me and that kind of again that commitment and dedication can be very powerful in practice but if there's a if there's a holding if there's a grasping in that surrendering and that devotion then it may mean we don't actually listen to a signal that's coming from our body that's gone beyond the point of just saying this is uncomfortable, okay, I can be with it but that's actually gone into a level of discomfort or a level of contraction which may actually be causing harm and the simple pain in the knee can be both a very useful counterpoint for our attention and it can equally and at other times be a signal that says enough if you wish this one to keep working well and so we can equally, in just the way we give ourselves, we can go too far. If we're not aware of where we're holding, where we're grasping, if it's sort of like, if I just stay with this another five minutes, then... And often it's unspoken. Often we're not articulating it to ourselves clearly what it is that we want from the situation, from the action, from the expression of devotion. So it's sometimes useful to stop and check and see because it's sort of like, you know, the big one, the big moment, the... the the, the thunderclap or the bright lights they've got to be just around the corner now or else it wouldn't be hurting this much and to see if that's actually keeping us there rather than just a genuine sense of I can be with this I can be with this yes it's possible it's quite a different thing quite a different thing not only is there the risk of failing to hear the signals when we're caught up with with a wanting in the devotion and the dedication in that way but also what can happen is a certain stagnation where we we somehow have given over the power again in too absolute a way that you know the guru is going to do it for me and for me I've never really sort of had that kind of a relationship with a, a guru which is why you know, I don't feel to be any authority on that aspect of the subject or particularly experienced in it but certainly 
my early years of practice, I remember an incredible devotion to the, to the form, really. And the, the form sitting on the chair is just the same as the form of sitting and walking, actually. It's the form. And here, practice is the form. There's not anyone sitting here most of the time, which probably helps that. But yet we can still make practice. We can still take practice in that way and say, somehow it's going to do it for me. I'm just going to sort of go through the motions. Just, just, you know, as long as I do it and do it well and, you know, at least make it look good, then something's going to happen from that. But that's actually not enough. And I remember in my own practice and that real devotion to it and uh, the years of just really trying to make every moment an expression of what the form of you know, mindfulness practice could be in that moment. But I realized at one point on a retreat, just a moment, there's somehow too much of the, the potential of what could happen here has been given away. It's been put somewhere else. It's been put into something other. And in this case, it was the practice. It could equally be a person or it could be a divine being or whatever. But if one totally gives that away, and it's not to say that, of course, you know, one is going to do it by oneself or for oneself or to oneself or in any of those things, but one also has to have a certain amount of responsibility. There's a certain amount of responsibility that we actually need to hold in our practice. And it, it's just a bringing back a real sense of aliveness, a real sense of authenticity in the way we are practicing that isn't doing it as a means to an end, because that's what happens. If it's going to do it, it becomes a means to an end. And then we're never actually quite where we are, because it's always a means to an end. It's never that. We, we can't fully inhabit our practice, fully inhabit our experience, because we're doing it for a reason beyond simply being, simply connecting, simply opening. So keeping the spirit alive means that our, our commitment to practice, our, our dedication, our devotion, bowing down to what the practice asks from us. Sometimes quiet voices within speak and we might not really want to hear them because they're suggesting challenging things. And we can just bow down to our own wisdom, to the invitations that come from within that speak of our possibilities, that know that our capacities are much greater than we often dare imagine. As I was saying, devotion is a, a movement of, that comes really from the heart and I think it's characterized by being a movement of or an expression of a way or a form of love that's deeply imbued with respect. A, form, a, a loving that's very, that's completely, absolutely permeated, sort of has, is completely soaked with respect. And in fact, in the tradition, the um, and the, the, the the Buddhist tradition, where we um, we may or we may see others at times sort of doing the various prostrations and the bowing forms to a Buddha shrine or a um, a Tara image or to a, a nun or a monk and the bowing is, is called the pain of respect but the devotional practice is the pain of respect and and respect is is not putting another 
below ourself, not elevating ourselves in relationship to any other. And yet, equally, it's not about elevating the other higher than us. It's not about putting another above us either, although it may seem to be. At one level, yet, the sense of self, the very personal ego, in a way, bows down and recognises something larger, something greater. But in our paying respect to what we recognise to be most important, and we might might see and feel in that what we truly value. We may value peace and kindness, or whatever it might be, love, freedom. That in, in that respect, not putting another down or something or someone down, not elevating them either, but there's actually a way in which the devotional practice that, that love imbued with respect is about recognizing the divinity in, recognizing the power of that to which we give that respect, that to which we devote ourselves. So devoting ourselves to the practice, to the Buddha, to the truth, to this moment. Recognizing the divinity in this moment. Recognizing the power of this moment. This is the act of devotion. And it's not elevating it because, and particularly when we're, it might be an image of a Buddha or a teacher or something who we devote ourselves to, it's not actually an elevation because that to which we are devoted, which we recognize the divine in. In that process of recognizing the divine and recognizing the power, we can actually come to see and to understand that the process of devotion in its essence arises through that part in ourselves, that aspect, that element of our own being which recognizes that divine in another is the same as what is recognized. That the the devotion to that which we see as divine comes from a place in our own being that is in fact of the same nature. That the very ability to recognize, to value and to, to devote our being to, whether it be a person, a particular quality or as I've spoken of, the simple experience of right now. There's something in that that's a two-way process. That's not about an elevation. That's really about seeing that it's not I, it's not self that devotes itself to other. But rather free of all of that, true devotion. True devotion is without I and you, is without self and other and is simply an expression and a manifestation of a connection, of an absence of separation in any true or absolute way. So to what are we devoted? To what do we give 
the energy of our lives do we bow down before? And what would it be to recognize, to understand that that which sees and values and bows down to the truth of life, to the possibility of freedom, to the wisdom of the Buddha, that that is not other than what it is bowing down to and could never be other. Could we just... May all beings live with devotion to peace. May all beings live with devotion to truth. May all beings be devoted to discovering freedom. <laughs>